Welcome to Heal Yourself with the Law of Attraction. I'm your host, Tekla, and I'm ready to guide you on a transformative journey of holistic health and self-discovery using the power of the Law of Attraction. We've all heard tales of manifesting fortunes and jet set adventures, but this, this is a different journey. Here we focus on achieving abundant health, mental, physical, emotional, and spiritual. With the Law of Attraction, I've healed chronic pain, overcome a diagnosed mental illness, and reversed PCOS. We're all about realigning our energies to manifest our full potential. As we focus inward, raising our vibration, you'll be astounded by the ease at which the universe responds. Once you focus on yourself, the rest just falls into place. My goal for each weekly episode is to provide you with practical, easy to apply steps that you can weave directly into your daily routine. Together, we'll navigate the path to achieving your own health and wellness goals. So let's dive right in. Hello, my wellness witches. I'm your host, Tekla. This is Heal Yourself with the Law of Attraction. And today we're continuing with part two of the Road to Recovery episode. This is my unfiltered journey through eating disorder onset, treatment, and remission leveraging the Law of Attraction. We're diving straight back in today, so if you missed part one, go back and catch up before listening, or this episode isn't going to make much sense at all. This is a trigger warning. Today's episode will cover eating disorders, specifically restrictive eating, binge eating, bulimia, calorie counting, excessive workouts, weight gain, and weight loss. If you're not ready to listen today, then this is your opportunity to switch this off for now and come back when it's right for you. I also want to let you know that there are several resources for you in the show notes if you're struggling with similar issues and you'd like to seek support. I'm going to state that the rest of today's episode will recount my experience and opinion about my time in a collegiate Division I rowing program, and it's solely based on my own memories and personal recounts of the events that occurred. This is my truth about what happened. Last week, we left off with my introduction to Collegiate Division I rowing in the U.S., and we're continuing from there. So after learning that it was advantageous to be the lightest weight possible to ensure good team ranking, that's where we focused. And I'm using we intentionally, me and the team. Diet and cutting weight was very much a part of that team culture. And it truly was everyone out for themselves. There are only eight spots in the top boat. The top boat in collegiate rowing is called the Varsity 8 or the V8. The next boat down is the Junior Varsity boat, which is called the JV8, and then it goes down from there. You're competing against 30 to 40 other girls to be in that top boat at all times. And as someone on full scholarship, you don't just sign the contract and get the next four years paid for. Your contract is reviewed every year and can be terminated at that stage too. So there's no signing on and then slacking off and bludging for the next four years. We had mandated team practice every morning from 6 a.m. to 9 a.m., except Sunday. Then we had scheduled secondary sessions with the team in the weight room two afternoons a week. On top of that, we had highly encouraged but expected secondary trainings on those other afternoons and on Sundays. And I say highly encouraged but expected because the NCAA actually caps the training hours of athletes each week to 20 hours, with a daily maximum of four hours. So while those additional workouts couldn't be mandatory under NCAA regulations, 
the messaging around those additional sessions were that you had to do them. And the seniors and the leadership on the squad would check up on you and see who's in the gym that afternoon or who's on the rowing machine and who was doing what. And I'm sure that this happens at other schools and it wasn't just the culture at my college. But the idea that they were voluntary, as they should have been, is just not right. I keep using the term NCAA, and I just realized that some of you aren't from the U.S., so let me stop and explain that. The NCAA is the National Collegiate Athletic Association. They are a nonprofit organization that regulates student athletics in the U.S., Canada, and Puerto Rico. Okay, back to the team. There was kind of this toxic culture on the team about injuries also, and I remember that very distinctly. If you got injured, you were shamed about it. That was the environment I walked into my first year on the team, and it stayed that way all four years because that's how we were raised to think. There was an assumption that those who got injured were faking the injury or the extent of the injury just to get out of practice. And when I say get out of practice, I mean just sit on the sidelines and watch because there was no getting out of practice. People who were injured had to attend practice every single day with the team and either sit on the sidelines or go and start recovery in the treatment room. People who accidentally or intentionally overslept were pulled out of their beds and put into the team vans and driven to practice. We would go from dorm room to dorm room for as long as it took to find someone in the morning. We wouldn't go to practice without the full team, whatever it took. You can't get into dorm room buildings on campus easily without a key card if you don't live there. We would find someone on the team in the same building, or we would wait for someone to leave that building so we could use the open door to get in. We would go up to that person's door and bang on the door until they opened it. We'd forget about everyone else in the suite that lived there that didn't have practice and wasn't on the team. We had one job, to get that person up and to practice. It was wild. I don't disagree with that attitude toward oversleeping because that kept everyone highly accountable. You knew there was no pulling a fast one and saying your alarm didn't go off. But the mindset and perception around injured people was horrific. I had never seen that happen on any other team in my life, ever. If you were injured, there was this understanding that you did everything you could to rest, recover, and get treatment until you could practice again. And as a result of, you know, that more positive and benefit-of-the-doubt mindset missing, people continued to train and row injured just to avoid the scrutiny by other team members, including me. My senior year on the team, I had excruciating back and neck pain to the point where I would wake up most mornings with numb legs. The trainers and medical staff in the treatment room were constantly going to war with our coaches for us about recovery and when we could go back to practice. They had our backs, thankfully. My last ever race in college was a regatta called the Dad Veil. It was the pinnacle of collegiate rowing in the springtime. I was battling and struggling with injury that entire spring season, and my parents and family were flying halfway around the world to see me race and graduate. My injury was so bad that the trainers and the medical staff told me I couldn't race. They stopped me from legally racing. So if I wanted to race that last race, which I desperately did, I had to sign an AMA, which is a legal document that basically says if I decide to train or race, 
I understand that it is against medical advice. It releases the school from liability if anything further happened to me due to that race. At that point, during my senior year, I was my lightest weight ever, and I was at the peak of my eating disorder, which nobody knew about. For the first two or so kind of years on the team, I'd been struggling seriously with keeping my weight down, and that was partially because I was literally starving myself. I would eat breakfast and dinner, and that's it. But I made sure I wasn't consuming more than 1,500 calories maximum. And keep in mind, I was burning close to 3,000 or more calories a day due to all the movement and training I was doing. Because I was in starvation mode, my body was doing everything it could to hold on to that weight because it needed something to keep me going through all of the workouts. And that meant I was losing weight at a very, very slow pace. And that angered me and frustrated me and I became obsessed. Losing weight was all I could think about. On top of that internal obsession and struggle that was happening, the top 10 or so heaviest girls on the team were forced to attend the Breakfast Club once a week. The Breakfast Club was a meeting with the campus dietitian in the middle of the main cafeteria in front of the entire team and school in the morning after practice. It was fucking embarrassing. The whole men's and women's squad would be sitting at other tables right behind us, and we would all be sitting at our own table, isolated from the rest because of our weight. The intention behind the breakfast club was positive. I have to believe that. Should every athlete meet with a dietitian to learn how to fuel their body in a more productive and efficient way? Absolutely, yes. But the way it was executed and the perception around it on the team was utterly humiliating. I knew I needed to get the fuck out of that club as quickly as I possibly could. So at that point, it was the start of my third year in college, which is called your junior year, and that's when I started seeing the dietitian one-on-one. Meeting with that dietitian was incredibly helpful because she explained to me that I was stuck in starvation mode and I wasn't going to lose weight easily unless I started to eat more calories more regularly. So we worked together to up my calories, we planned my meals, and that's when I hacked weight loss. All of a sudden, I knew what I had to do to lose as much weight as I could as quickly as possible. I had to find this perfect balance of calorie intake and overall deficit to stay in a weight loss cycle. And as soon as I had that knowledge, I stopped seeing the dietitian because in my mind, she had given me everything I needed to get the job done, to lose the weight. And over that year, I lost maybe 30 or 40 pounds. I started my senior year at a weight of about 150 pounds. And how do I know that? Well, because the first thing they do when you get back to school is get you on the scale. That was when I really didn't need to lose any more weight. I would have been at a fit, healthy weight, but I didn't care. I wanted to be as skinny and light as possible to take the pressure off of training. Because everything was weight-adjusted, remember? So I could do a timed rowing test over, say, 2,000 meters, and if I got a slow score, I would get seconds removed because I was under the average team weight. And that meant I could move up and up in the team rankings so easily. There were so many external pressures to perform, to keep the scholarship, to keep my grades up, to pretend to be happy and carefree and having fun at college, that the thing I could control My weight was my sole focus. 
So I kept dieting and restricting and losing. I lost another 10 pounds that season and weighed in around 139 pounds at my lightest. I'm pretty sure it was that. I had sticky notes on the back of my dorm room door, and it was the greatest feeling after a weigh-in to go back to my room and tear up each note, one for every pound I had lost that week. Weigh-ins were constant, and we would rarely go two weeks without one. When we were traveling and away for winter or spring training, we would weigh in, sometimes in public. I remember this one year we were in Miami, which is where we always went for winter training. We didn't have a scale, so we all filed into Publix, which is a huge grocery store chain. There was this giant old scale right at the front door where everyone walked in. We would stand on that scale in front of not only the whole team, but the general public and weigh in. I will never forget that. I was sick to my stomach about that, even though I knew my weight would be low that year. I remember weighing in one time during my senior year and our head coach looking at my weight and saying to me, that's enough now. You don't have an eating disorder, do you? I'm laughing it off. I did. I very much did. At that point, I was not only counting every calorie I was consuming and restricting, I was also bulimic and purging what I could. I was struggling so deeply and internally and I was at war with myself over my body. I felt like I was out of control of my mind. I couldn't think about anything else but weight and how I looked compared to others and food. It was all-consuming. After school ended, unfortunately, that purging behavior continued. I chose to remain in New York City and live and work there after college finished. I felt like I didn't have the opportunity to really live and enjoy it after my time at school, and I wanted to. I grew up watching Gossip Girl, and I wanted to experience all of the excitement and energy and vibrancy the city had to offer. That said, I was pretty lonely. I had friends in the city from school, but I still had that one-track mindset, that eating disorder brain that kept me isolated. I remember each time I would move apartments, I would say to myself, this is it. New bathroom, new apartment, fresh start. We won't be throwing up in that toilet. And it never worked. After a couple of years, I reached out to a therapist, but it wasn't enough. It was an app where you can text with a therapist, but it just wasn't the level of help I needed. Eventually, I moved out of New York City to Denver, Colorado, with my partner at the time, who knew a little of what I was going through, but not nearly enough to support me. I kept the extent of it, those details very close to the chest, for way too long. I started seeing an in-person therapist when I was there in Denver, who I paid an absolute fortune to, and told me she had expertise in eating disorder treatment, but we never really tackled it in a way that was helpful. It was skimmed over and I felt like I didn't get the support I needed. After about two years of seeing her every other week, I realized I needed more and started researching alternatives. I found an intensive outpatient eating disorder treatment program at the Eating Recovery Center in Denver. I had a preliminary evaluation done and some introductory calls, and I was accepted into that program. I really went into that thinking it was going to be way too much and way too intensive. I genuinely thought I didn't need that level of help, but I was willing to give it a try. As soon as I started that program, I realized it was exactly what I had needed. I had wished I had done it sooner. 
I didn't realize how bad things actually were. That program involved 12 hours a week, three hours a night for four nights, and an additional one hour with a psychologist and one hour with a nutritionist. And those were both one-on-one sessions. I was in that program for four months total. However, there's no real end date. The coordinators and therapists decide when you're ready to leave. Around the same time I started my outpatient program, I found a podcast called Law of Attraction Changed My Life. I started listening and really resonated with the content and the foundations for the law of attraction. From there, I read The Secret, and that changed my whole perspective on practicing gratitude and the importance of enjoying and appreciating what you have right now, in this moment. It gave me the opportunity to look at the everyday things in a new light, the things I had taken for granted in the past, especially my health. At the beginning stages of recovery, I was still very much at a point where I hated my body and I felt like it was failing me. It never looked the way I wanted, no matter how much weight I lost. I always had to diet to be what I thought was a respectable size and shape. I felt like I gained weight easily and it was something I just had to be mindful of every single time I sat down to eat. I was so jealous of the people who could eat whatever they wanted without a second thought and never had to think about dieting. And I was in that low vibrational state for many years. But in reality, there were so many things my body was doing to protect me and keep me alive, including holding on to that weight. I realized it was time to start being grateful for my sight, my sense of smell, my ability to breathe easily, my ability to move freely. All these things we overlook, and I started practicing gratitude for them. Practicing gratitude is very much a skill. The more you do it, the better you are at it. It wasn't long until I was able to look at the many, many things my body was doing to keep me in good health and feel genuine gratitude. I'm not going to lie to you, I still didn't love the body I was living in, but I was able to find things to be grateful for. I started doing exercises where I'd stand in the mirror and just look at myself. As some of you might know, people with eating disorders tend to avoid looking in mirrors and taking photos, so just looking at myself was a big step for me. I would just look for a few seconds or minutes, as long as I could, and try not to be judgmental. I would just practice noticing things. Things like, my hair is wavy today. My eyes look greener today. My skin looks healthy today. And if anything negative came up, which it inevitably did, I would just acknowledge it, dismiss it, and come back again the next day. I then deepened my knowledge of the Law of Attraction by reading The Magic, another book in Rhonda Byrne's series, Following the Secret. The Magic is a 28-day gratitude practice, and there are guided exercises to do every single day. It's a lot of work, and it takes about 30 minutes each morning, but I committed to it, and I grew to love it. The day always starts with a list of 10 things you're grateful for, and you write that out as soon as you wake up. Every day, your gratitude list has to include new items. You can't repeat any of them. So when you end the month, you have a list of 280 things to be grateful for. Coupled with the work I was doing in the treatment program, a lot of those 280 things became about me and my body and overcoming what I had been through in college and on that rowing team. I also found that a core part of the eating disorder treatment 
was identifying your values and trying to make choices in alignment with those values. That mirrored the law of attraction teachings I'd been learning about, which made that concept resonate with me even more deeply. Living in alignment is something we talk about all of the time on the podcast, and it's such a foundational element of the universal laws. Do more of what lights you up, what brings you joy and happiness, and less of what lowers your vibrational state of being. It became easier for me to let go of calorie counting and the meticulous review of food labels and closing the rings on my Apple Watch every day. I realized that those things don't bring me joy. I actually couldn't think of anything better than just getting rid of my Apple Watch. So I did. I just woke up one day and stopped wearing it. I don't need to burn the same exact amount of calories every single day. I don't need to beat my previous time when I'm working out. There's no competition anymore. I realize those things just don't matter. And I started releasing control and letting all of that go. Once you start to let go of all of those things, you become actually amazed about what you have room for. There's actually space to prioritize the things you do care about. And for me, a big part of that was learning more about the law of attraction. So I continued to learn and read and invest my energy into that because it had already helped me so much. I would take little pieces of what I had learned and liked the most and try to apply them to my daily routine. For example, I would wake up every day and the first thought I would have is, I'm truly grateful for my health. It's keeping me alive. I then started writing affirmations down when I felt myself getting stuck in that eating disorder thought cycle. It would just bring me out of that and I would be able to calm my thinking and refocus on what's actually important to me, my values. The more learning I did, the more I realized that without your health, you really don't have anything. And we only really tend to think about our health when we don't have it. I am sure you can relate to this. When you've got a bad cold or the flu and it just takes you out for a couple of weeks or more. Or you have a health scare and need to go and get some scans or testing done. That's when you think about your health. And all that matters to you in those moments is feeling better or knowing that you're going to be okay. And throughout all of that learning and my time in the eating disorder program, I was practicing gratitude for the body I had. A body that had fought to keep me alive, even though it had been malnourished and mistreated and abused by me for so many years. I had pushed and pushed and pushed it to the absolute limit and never even gave it a second thought. I was so disconnected from my body for so many years that I had to learn how to listen to it again. I had to tune back into the signs and signals I had dismissed and numbed for over a decade. When you step back and actually learn more about the human body, you realize it is the most amazing, complex, and intelligent system. It knows what to do, and you don't have to tell it or teach it anything. For example, the immune system functions like a team of specialized defenders within your body, capable of identifying and combating harmful invaders like viruses and bacteria. Pain serves as an alert system, transmitting signals to your brain when you encounter something harmful like a hot surface, prompting you to take immediate action to prevent injury. Your digestive system is like a well-organized factory, breaking down all of this food into nutrients your body can use and ensuring you get the maximum amount of energy and nourishment you need. 
All of these amazing functions and systems and elements are working perfectly in harmony every single day. Your body knows what to do. You just need to listen more closely and start to understand what it's trying to tell you. The more I listened, the more I realized I can trust my body. It knows what to do. It won't fail me. It just sometimes needs a little help. And I started to really mend this relationship between my mind and my soul and my spirit and my physical body. And this wasn't all smooth sailing, I will tell you. Healing isn't linear in any capacity. You have ups, downs. You take three steps forward and then four back sometimes. It's really hard work to identify and face your biggest insecurities and vulnerabilities. I didn't tell anyone I had an eating disorder or that I was in an intensive treatment program except my ex. It was obvious my availability had changed to immediate friends, and so we agreed to tell them that I was taking a night class. I didn't even tell my own family until the last week of the eating disorder program. Healing is part of your own journey, and you get to decide who is allowed to know and when. It's an incredibly personal process, and you don't owe that information to anyone. After graduating from that eating disorder program, I was told my last week that only about 45% of patients ever fully recover, and that relapse is common. I was actually shocked and astounded by that statistic. I couldn't believe it. For some reason, though, I just knew that I was going to be one of those people that fully recovered. Complementing the learnings from the program with the Law of Attraction teachings was a game changer for me. It gave me this newfound sense of hope and purpose, and I knew I was back in control of my life. I knew that by leading a life of gratitude, I would always have faith in the universe, myself, and my body. And the faith in myself and my body has been questionable at times, I won't lie, but the faith in the universe has been unwavering. Everything happens for a reason, and the universe never deals you more than you can handle. And I am so beyond grateful that I spent that time on myself, recovering and working to better my mental health, because that allowed space to focus on my physical and spiritual health. And I've never been the same since. And as you know, that investment into the law of attraction has continued for years since, and I'm still learning more every day. That's where we're stopping today, friends. I really hope you enjoyed today's episode and found some value in it. I know that this is a difficult topic for almost everyone to discuss. And again, if you need additional support, please see the show notes for some resources and reach out to a licensed healthcare professional if you need to. There's no shame, absolutely none, in getting some additional support. That's all for today. Peace, love, and mung beans. Bye.